0: One faithful act as a new generation redeemed the time of centuries past and stepped into their destiny. On this day, I give you your new prince and master of audiences, Mordecai Benja. And I send forth this story, enjoining all to keep the day of feasting and gladness, a celebration to be passed on and retold through every generation, to be known as Purim, for the casting of the pool. morning. You guys ready to finish Esther today? It's kind of a bittersweet day. Uh, this has been a great study. Hope you guys have enjoyed it as much as I have enjoyed studying it and bringing it to you guys each week. Take out your Bibles this morning. Turn to the book of Esther chapter 9. We'll begin in verse 17 today and we will finish uh, through chapter 10 verse 3. It's on page 206 if you happen to be using one of the Bibles that we provided for you when you came in at the door this morning. Well, you guys ready to party today? Alright two of you over here really excited (laughs) Well, I'm not sure about the rest of you. Maybe you need to come sit by these folks. But uh, we, we put the balloons up today to kind of create a little bit of a party atmosphere. So sorry if those are in anybody's way, but they're not. So one lady said, I thought they were for Valentine's Day. No, we're celebrating today in the book of Esther. We're celebrating the end of the book. And we're celebrating because that's what's happening here at the end of the book of Esther. This series, this book is going to close out with a party, with a celebration to celebrate the deliverance and freedom of the Jewish people. As we've seen take place in this story. And so I've titled the message today, Permission to party. Um, Just to kind of catch you guys up, maybe those of you that are first-time guests, or if you haven't been here in a while, as we're kind of getting to the very end of the book of Esther, basically what this story is about is there is an evil guy that comes on the scene called Haman. Uh, He's the prime minister, second in charge to the king. Um, He hates this Jew named Mordecai, and so he decides to get even with him to destroy all the Jews living in the Persian empire. And so he makes this law that on a certain date, uh, the, the 13th day of the month of Adar, the last month of the Jewish calendar, he's going to have them annihilated. And it looks like, you know, it's going to be like a holocaust in the Old Testament. But God, in his providence and protection of his people, steps in. He allows this obscure girl, um, her her Hebrew name is Hadassah, her Persian name is Esther. She becomes the queen uh, of Persia. She becomes the wife of the king, of course. And through her and her um, uncle, uh, Mordecai, or excuse me, her cousin, you know, they are able to come to the king and say, hey, can we do something to save the Jewish people? He allows them to write a new law that the Jews are going to be able to defend themselves. And so last week we saw these two laws, you know, collide as Haman's evil plan to try to annihilate the Jews and then Mordecai and Esther's plan for them to defend themselves. Uh, that, that battle took place. And as we remember last week, the Jews were successful. They were able to defend themselves and, and save their lives as God had intervened in this story to save and protect his people, and and free them and deliver them. Um, If you're taking notes this morning, let me just give you last week, we talked about the vindication of Israel uh, how the Jews were vindicated and the tables turned and they were set free and they were delivered and what was supposed to be D-Day the day of destruction ended up being the day of deliverance as God stepped in and saved them and of course we know Haman is long gone he was hung and and his 10 sons were killed and they they were hung and so now uh, number two on your outline today as we finish this up permission to party they're celebrating a partying because of the vindication uh, vindication excuse me that Took place and now number two today the celebration that is going to occur in this story so that's kind of brings us up to speed so let's pick up our story in chapter 9 verse 17 as we see this celebration permission a party for the jews because of the incredible victory and freedom and deliverance that god has provided for his people chapter 9 verse 17 it says this was on the 13th day of the month of adar that's the last month of the jewish calendar And on the 14th of the month, they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. A party broke out. But the Jews who were at Shushan, that's the capital, assembled themselves together on the 13th day as well as on the 14th. And on the 15th of the month, they rested and made it a day of feasting And gladness. We'll talk about that in just a moment. What was going on there. Therefore the Jews of the villages who dwelt in the unwalled town. Celebrated the 14th day of the month of Adar. With gladness and feasting. Their party broke out on the 14th day. As a holiday. And for sending presents to one another. You know it was a holiday. Kids got out of school. It was a great time. Verse 20. And Mordecai wrote these things. And sent letters to all the Jews near and far. Who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. To establish among them that they should celebrate. How often church? Yearly. That they should celebrate yearly the 14th and the 15th days of the month of Adar in the Jewish calendar, as the days on which the Jews had rest from their enemies, as the month which was turned from sorrow to joy. From destruction to deliverance, like we talked about last week, and from mourning to a holiday, and that they should make them days of feasting and joy, of sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted the custom which they had begun, as Mordecai had written or instructed them to do, because Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to annihilate them, and had cast poor, that is the what? It's the lot. To consume them and destroy them. That was his evil plan. But when Esther came before the king, he commanded by letter that this wicked plot which Haman had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows, and they were. So they called these days Purim after the name Pur or Lot. Therefore, because of all the words of this letter, What they had seen concerning this matter and what had happened to them, the Jews established and imposed it upon themselves and their descendants and all who would join them, that without fail they should celebrate these two days. How often, church? Every year, according to the written instructions and according to the prescribed time, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, even though this happened 2,300 years ago. Every year, every generation of the Jewish people celebrate the feast of purim every family in every province in every city that these days of purim should not fall fail to be observed among the jews and that the memory of them should not perish among their descendants then queen esther the daughter of Abihail, with mordecai the jew wrote with full authority to confirm the second letter about purim and mordecai sent a letter and said do this every year and then esther sent another letter and said yes do this As the queen it's, it's good to celebrate this event And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews to 127 provinces that was in the Persian Empire of the kingdom of Ahasuerus with these words of peace and truth to confirm these days of Purim at their appointed time as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had prescribed for them as they had decreed for themselves and their descendants concerning matters of their fasting and lamenting. So the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim and it was written in the book. So we see this permission to party, to celebrate this event. You know, as I was studying this and thinking about it, you know, it's sad when people forget to remember and celebrate their history and their heroes. You know, I think of days like Memorial Day, uh, Veterans Day. Think about the different, you know, war memorials that are around our country. Uh, How many of you guys have ever been to Hawaii, to Pearl Harbor, and seen the Arizona Memorial? Um, I've had the opportunity and privilege to... Two different times, once when I was in high school and then a few years ago with my wife and family, we were able to go to Hawaii and and we took our kids and we told them the story of what happened on that fateful day, December 7th, 1941, right there. And there was the Arizona still laying entombed under the water and the memorial over it. And it's such a somber thing, but it's good to remember those who've given their lives so that we can enjoy every day the freedoms we enjoy in this country, amen? It's good to remember and not forget our heritage and our past and, and, and things that have been done for us. Philosopher George Santayana said this, those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it. The Jews wanted to make sure that the events of the book of this incredible story in Esther were never forgotten, never, by any of the Jews in any generation for 2,300-some years. And they call this party, this celebration, the Feast of Purim. And let me give you the definition of it in your notes. The Feast of Purim reminds the Jews every year of God's deliverance from destruction. And what God had done as their hero to step in and save them as a people group. Now, I realize this is not today a Christian memorial. This is not a Christian festival. It's a Jewish celebration, a Jewish festival. But let me remind all of you today as Christians that this is part of our heritage because our heritage is traced back to the Jewish people, amen? They're very important. They're God's people first before we. And now we've had the privilege through salvation through Jesus Christ to be grafted in to, to Israel and, and, and to be God's people, to be a peculiar people. It is through the Jews that we have the knowledge of the one true God that we serve and that we praised and we worship this morning. It is through the Jewish people that we have received our scriptures, Particularly the Old Testament, it's because of the Jewish people. It's through the Jewish people, let's not forget, that Jesus, our Messiah, came. When you think about it, church, the first Christians were not Gentiles. They were Jews. The first missionaries that were sent out were Jews. And Jesus himself, our Messiah, is a Jew. Jesus said himself in John 4.22, for salvation is of the Jews. It's important for us to understand our heritage and where we have come from. And even though the Feast of Purim may not be a Christian festival, it is something we can also celebrate with them and remember what God did for those people. But you know, we have a lot of Christian memorials that God doesn't want us to forget in our lives. Communion is one of them. When, whenever we come in here and we take communion, it's a memorial. It's to remember that we never forget the body and the blood of Jesus Christ that was given on the cross to save us from our sins we have baptism baptism is a picture and a symbol for us to remember that someone has accepted christ they put their faith and trust in christ baptism doesn't save anyone but it lets us know that they are saved they've made that decision it's an outward expression of an inward decision of faith in christ it's a memorial amen to remember and celebrate when somebody has made that decision easter is coming up just about i think six weeks or so Easter will be here. It's an incredible remembrance, a memorial for us to remember our risen Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Christmas, we remember the birth of Christ. So memorials like this, celebrations, are very important. So let's talk a little bit about this Feast of Purim and what it means to the Jewish people. First, let's talk a minute about the dates. The dates. In verse 17 to 21... We see the the description of these dates and how this was established. And I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but I do want to point out a couple of things. In verse 19, the Jews in the provinces outside of Shushan, the capital, they were the the first ones to celebrate their victory on the 14th day because they were able to finish their battle in one day. But verse 18 says the Jews in Shushan celebrated not on the 14th day, but on which day? The 15th day. You remember last week what we saw in the first part of chapter 9? Remember Esther came to the king and said, listen, there's still some enemies. There's still some uh, Haman followers. They're going to attack us. We need one more day to be able to defend ourselves. And so they extended their battle one more day. So they rested on the 15th day. So most of the Jews in the Persian Empire celebrated on the 14th day, but those in the capital celebrated on the 15th day, which is why in verse 20 and verse 21, Mordecai instructed them, when you celebrate this event every year from now on forever, celebrate it not just on the 14th, but also on the... 15th, because those were to represent, remember, the Jews that were in Shushan. So they celebrate every year on the 14th and 15th month of Adar. Now, that's the Jewish calendar. That translates into our calendar. It moves around, just like Easter. If you notice, Easter's not the same every year. It moves around because it matches up with the Jewish calendar. So this year, in 2012, the Feast of Purim is getting ready to happen in just a couple of weeks on March 7th and 8th. This year is where it falls on our calendar. Will be the celebration of Feast of Purim for the Jewish people. You'll notice in verse 31 that Esther said it was also to be a time of fasting. The Jews begin Purim on the 13th of the month of Adar. Which this year would be March 6th on our calendar. To remember they feast or on that day they fast. Excuse me, they don't feast, they fast. The opposite of that. They fast and they pray on that day before they celebrate. Because that was the day they were supposed to be annihilated. That was the day a year before that Haman signed this evil decree to annihilate and destroy the Jewish people. So they begin this celebration with prayer and fasting, and then they celebrate on the next two days, the 14th and 15th. But on the 13th of the month of Adar is when they fast and they lament. I kind of wondered as I was studying this, maybe does that have anything to do with the unlucky number 13? Is it tied in possibly to this and that evil day? We don't know for sure. Let me give you some customs that surround the Feast of Purim. What are some of the customs? And there are many uh, to kind of tell you about this celebration, this party, and what, what takes place every year. We read about these customs in verse 22 to 25. And let me give you some of them. First of all, there's an Esther uh, reading. There's a reading of the book of Esther every year. On the 13th day when they're, when they're fasting... They will go into the synagogue and they will sit and they will read. The rabbi will read the whole book of Esther. And every time they come, I showed you guys this several times in this book. Every time they come to the name Haman, what do they do? yeah they boo and they hiss and they stomp their feet and the little kids come in and they have these things this uh, this kind of thing on a stick it's a noisemaker it's called a Gregor, and they bring it in and every time Haman's name is mentioned they they do this and they make it really loud people bring rocks in and they write Haman's name on it and they click them together and they try to rub his name out they put a Haman's name on their shoes and they stomp their feet and 52 times as the rabbi is reading this book they're booing and hissing every time Haman's name is mentioned and, and they're saying things like let him be cursed blah out his name reminding them of you know the evil man that he was to try and annihilate them and so that happens on the 13th day of the month then on the 14th day in the morning the day begins again by fasting and prayer they go into the synagogue esther is read again and they're praying and fasting during the morning into the afternoon and then that evening the celebration begins because as we reminded the jewish people start their day at sundown going to the next evening a little different than our day so the celebration begins in the evening of the 14th the party begins all the way to the evening of the 15th and that's where they have their party they're feasting they're celebrating now here's some of the things that go on customs during this time and this these are all right here from the book of esther in verse 22 we read that esther said they would give gifts to one another Uh, and so to this day when they have the feast of purim they get these baskets they're called a mishlosh manat and they take these baskets and they fill them with sweets and snacks and other various foods. And it's kind of almost like our Easter basket. You know, and the kids wake up and they get these baskets. And they give them to friends and they give them to neighbors. And they give them to the poor. And so they have these special gifts. And then they have special foods during this custom. Special foods. This one is hilarious. It's awesome. To this day, they have what are called haman It means Haman's ears. And they make these little triangular pastries. They look just like this in the picture. They put, you know, like apricots and fruits inside them. And these are to represent Haman's ears. And they're, they eat them. And they're like, we're eating Haman's ears. And that's what they call them. And then they also have this other kind of food. I couldn't find a picture, p- picture of it. But it's, uh, it's called uh, kerplots or something like that. It's, it's a kind of dumpling. And inside of it, it has meat. And I thought this was interesting as I studied this this week. They have this dumpling with meat hidden inside. And one of the reasons they chose that is because it reminds them of the God who was present but hidden in the book of Esther. And the meat inside represents that God, even though you can't see him, he was there uh, in that story providentially working behind the scenes. And then the kids love the Feast of Purim because it's a big costume party. I mean, they, they put on costumes. The children will dress up. In Feast of Purim costumes, they'll dress up like Mordecai and the king and, and Esther. And, and uh, they, they have all these costumes on. And, and one of the... Things I also read why they wear costumes, and disguises, is again, to remind them of the God who is present in the book of Esther, but he is disguised. We don't read his name anywhere. And so they wear these, of course, all the little girls want to be Queen Esther, and you know, they dress up. I don't know if a kid, if I'd want to be Haman, I'd be afraid people would like throw stuff, you know, and like, you know, hey, we have gallows right over here for you, you know, I'm not sure about that one. But I was kind of, as I was studying this, I was like, man, this sounds like a really fun party, I mean, there is food, and there is, you know, costumes, and there's gift giving. I mean, this sounds pretty sweet. And I was thinking about the kids in costumes. And so when we have our harvest party here at Prairie View in the parking lot, you know, this coming Halloween, we should have kids dress up, you know, like Feast of Purim costumes. So get your girls' Esther costumes ready, and maybe they can do that uh, uh, this year. Let me give you some of the meanings of Feast of Purim. What is the meaning of it? Where does this name come from? Well, in verse 26 to 32, we learn... That the word Purim is the plural form of the word Pur, which means lot, you know, the casting of lots. And back in Esther chapter 3, verse uh, 7, we saw that when Haman was gonna try to decide which day to choose to annihilate the Jews, uh, he cast lots or like rolled the dice. And it wasn't just one, but it was several. And so that is why it is called Purim and not just poor. He cast the lots against them to decide and determine the day that he would put this decree out to annihilate the Jews. Um, Purim is the, that plural form of poor. Um, it's the I-M that makes it plural in the Hebrew you know, language. Uh, whenever we want to make something plural, we put an S on the end of it. But in their language, they put an I-M. It's kind of like a cherub, you know, as an angel But if if there's more than one, we don't say cherubs, we say cherubim, plural. So it's the plural form of poor or casting of lots is is where this comes from. In verse 26 to 28, they celebrate the Feast of Purim every year, as we read. And there's a particular emphasis in verse 26 to 28, emphasizing that parents teach teach their children the meaning of the Feast of Purim. To remember What God has done for their people to give God the glory to celebrate him, to praise him for his protection and his providence and his goodness in their lives. And it's a responsibility of the parents. That's why they do it year after year after year, lest they ever forget the incredible things that God did in this amazing story in the book of Esther. And you know, that ought to be a challenge to us as Christian parents, to remember, as I mentioned before, some of the memorials that we celebrate and that we as parents teach our children the meaning of communion when we come and we take that you know before you come explain to your kids what, what why are you drinking that juice why are you taking that little broken up cracker cracker I mean, if you don't explain that to somebody that's kind of a weird deal i mean this is what is this a, a snack what is this it's important that we as parents teach our children the meaning it's important parents that you teach your children the meaning of baptism when, when we have baptism that when Easter comes around, that it's not about the Easter bunny. It's about the fact that we're celebrating Jesus rose from the dead when Christmas comes around, that we, we're celebrating the birth of Christ and that we as parents teach those things to our children. You see, it's very important that we celebrate what God has done in the lives of people. Amen? That's what really this is all about. This party, this celebration is to celebrate how awesome and incredible our God is how much he loves us how much he protects us how much his providence works behind the scenes in our lives and then we celebrate those things we should never get used to God changing people's lives we should never get used to that for those of you that have already liked us on Facebook you've seen some of these numbers for those of you who haven't you still got to like us so you can win your free dinner But let me just tell you this. Here's what we celebrated most of all in the State of the Church Address. We had over 120 people who accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior last year alone. 120 people. We better celebrate that. Amen? That is something to celebrate. We had over 131 people follow the Lord in believers' baptism by immersion last year alone. 131 people in 2011. Some of y'all remember, 94 of those took place right here on this stage on Easter Sunday. It was amazing. It was the most incredible service. It was so cool. We're going to do it again this year. That'd be okay. Could y'all live with that if we did that again this year on Easter? Yeah, you can applaud that. Listen, plan on that. If you've been looking for a perfect opportunity, a great time to get baptized, there's not a better time than Easter Sunday. As we celebrate Jesus Christ who rose from the dead and, and, and was given new life, you get to celebrate the new life through baptism that you have in Jesus Christ. I've already had some people throughout the year go, are you doing that Easter baptism thing again? Because I'm waiting till then. And so we've already got several, 20, 30 people I think already signed up uh, planning to do that. But you know what? As we have that baptism on this stage, I mean every person that comes out of that water, we ought to just erupt in applause and celebrate Listen, y'all, that doesn't happen by accident. That doesn't happen by coincidence. That is a picture and symbol that God is working in people's lives, that he's changing lives. I mean, when I say that, that 120 people accepted Christ last year alone, when 131 people were baptized, listen, I'm not trying to put down or dog any other churches. I just want you guys to understand what God is doing at the Orchard Church is nothing short of a miracle. It is nothing short of a miracle. Listen, I know a lot of churches. They're lucky if they baptize five people in a year, or ten people in a year, or twenty people in a year. And listen, if that one is 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 enough to celebrate, I'm just telling you all that this is amazing i mean we've had we've had over like 700 people accept christ and be baptized in the six years of our existence i mean that is incredible i hope we never take that for granted i hope we always celebrate it we've had already 26 people this year or we just got out of the first month of the year january we've already had 26 people accept christ this year at the orchard church we need to celebrate people who have been delivered and set free from the bondage of their sin By Jesus Christ, just like the Jews celebrate every year their freedom, their deliverance from annihilation, from from a death sentence they had upon them. We need to remember and celebrate those who've been lifted from an eternal death sentence and have been given life in Jesus Christ. I can't think of anything greater to celebrate than that. We're given permission to party as well. The Jews were given permission to party because of the vindication that took place because of the celebration, the victory over their enemies. And then finally, we see number three, they were given permission to party because of the exaltation of our hero in the story, Mordecai. Let's read the last three verses of Esther. And King Ahasuerus imposed tribute. That's tax, just like a king. They get done celebrating, he's going to tax everybody. I'll explain that in a minute. And King Ahasuerus imposed tribute, tax on the land and on the islands of the sea, Now all the acts of his power and his might and the account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles, the records of the history of the kings of the media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second to King Ahasuerus and was great among the Jews. And well received by the multitude of his brethren, seeking the good of his people and speaking peace to all his countrymen. Mordecai, unlike his predecessor Haman... Use his position to serve the king and to help the Jewish people. You know, isn't it amazing when people are given positions of leadership and power? They can either use it for self or they can use it for others. Mordecai chose it to use it for the king and for the Jewish people, for others. Now, in verse one, what is up with this king, man? What a way to spoil a party! He puts a tax and a tribute. Well, we don't know for sure why this new tax was imposed but remember Mordecai the Jew is second in command I mean he's like the prime minister many scholars believe you see up until this point the way the Persian empire would try to gain its wealth and conquer the world was through war to try to go out and conquer people groups and annihilate them and take their stuff and so Mordecai said you know why can't we live at peace you know, why do we have to do that? And many scholars believe that Mordecai probably talked to the king and said, why don't we instead institute just a simple little bit more tax? And that we, we can, you know, we can take care of the empire that way. We don't have to go to war. Remember now, the Jewish, 15 million Jews living in Persia, they're free to work. They're free to get gain. And he's like, you know, we can contribute to society. And so many scholars believe that this was actually not a negative thing, but a positive thing in the kingdom to stop trying to go to war and annihilate people. And actually, you know, let's just, just take a little bit of a tax, and it will be for the good of everybody. We don't know for sure, but here's the key. God continued to use Mordecai to help the Jewish people and the people loved him and he was exalted in the kingdom. Verse three says that he was well received. People loved that Mordecai was in power. He was well received and he sought the good of his people. You know why? Because we've seen it throughout this story. I mean, I know this is the story of Esther, but in in a lot of ways, it ought to be the story also just as much of Mordecai. Because it was Mordecai, the Jew, who heard that his people were going to be annihilated, who took the time to go to Esther and say, Esther, will you go to bat for the behalf of the Jewish people? Will you talk to the king? It was Mordecai, really in the story, always working kind of behind the scenes to speak up for God's people and to save them. Because he loved them and he had a heart for them. And what a challenge that is to us Christians. I know I've mentioned it several times in this book, that we need to speak up. We need to speak up for those around us in our sphere of influence that do not know Christ. Those who have an eternal death sentence on their life until they accept Jesus Christ their Lord and Savior. Our family members, our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors. That we will be challenged by Mordecai who cared enough about people to speak up and speak out. That we would share our faith and we would share the gospel. See, through Mordecai and Esther, God preserved the Jewish nation so that we today could have the Scriptures and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now it's our turn. It's our turn. The baton has been passed to us to go all in, speak up on the behalf of Jesus Christ, and tell people about how he loves them and he wants to save them. And go all in, just like Mordecai and Esther, to bring people to Christ, to save those people who right now do not know him. I want to close with a few lessons from the book of Esther. For those of you who've been here for about, it's been about a 10 week study, 11 week study through these 10 chapters. I want to give you kind of a wrap up lessons, practical lessons that we've pointed out from time to time that you could take with you. I hope you'll put these somewhere. I hope you'll save them in your Bible. I hope you'll refer to them as we wrap this book up. The practical lessons that we learn from the book of Esther, that we can put into practice in our life when we walk out these doors Monday morning, you can use these. Are you ready? Let me give them to you simply. Number one, we are reminded in the book of Esther that God is providentially working in our lives behind the scenes. God is providentially working in our lives behind the scenes. If you believe that church, say yes. What we have seen from the beginning, I've pointed out many times in the book of Esther, it's one of only two books in the Bible where God's name is never mentioned one time. Jesus' name is not mentioned. The temple is not mentioned. It it would be as if you could go in and read the book of Esther and, and, and think that God is not there and he's not involved, yet you cannot study and read the book of Esther without seeing God's fingerprints all over the place. And the same is true in our lives. In the times in our lives we feel like God has forgotten us. God has left us. God, where are you? You ever felt that way? I think we all have. Those times in our lives, the darkest times, we feel like God is not present and God is not around. He is. He is. And he's working providentially behind the scenes. The theme verse from the New Testament that matches up with the book of Esther. We've referred to several times. Don't ever forget it. I hope you'll never hear this verse again and, and without thinking of the book of Esther. We love to quote this verse. And you've got an entire story in the Bible that illustrates this verse. Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good. To those who love God. To those who are the called according to His purpose. We need to remember that God is providentially working in our lives behind the scenes, even when we don't think that he is there. He is. Some of you needed to hear that this morning. Embrace that. Hold on to it. Number two, here's another lesson we learned from Esther. God is bigger than any peril, persecution, or problem you may be facing or that you will ever face in the future. He is bigger than than any peril, persecution, or problem. I mean, as you read this story, everything was against the Jews. There was a law put in place that could not be changed. The only way things could be turned around was for a supernatural God to step in, and he did. And he's bigger than any problem, peril, or persecution that we face. Just as we saw him turn the tables in this story... For Esther, Mordecai, and the Jews. Just like we saw them get that wild card a couple of weeks ago to write a new law. He can do the same in your life. There's nothing too big for God. You believe that, church? Say yes. There is nothing. But you don't know my situation, pastor. There's nothing. You don't know what I'm going through. I don't, but there's nothing. Romans 8:31 says it this way, what then shall we say to these things if God is for us who can be against us? There was a whole nation of people that tried to come against the small amount of people, the Jews that lived in Persia. But God was on their side and he's bigger. Let me, let me encourage you with this. For those of you especially that are here today and you're going through something in your life right now, in your marriage, your family, your finances, your job, your health, whatever it is, if there's one thing we've learned in the book of Esther, wait till the end of the story. Let God tell the end of your story. Don't try to write it yourself yourself. Don't try to let somebody else write it. Let God write the end of your story and your situation. We've learned in this book that opportunities often come disguised as trials, don't they? Opportunities often are disguised as trials. And God is bigger than any peril, persecution, or problem that you and I will ever face. Number three, we are reminded in this story, the lesson that God's delays... Are not always his denials. God's delays are not always his denials. I mean, Mordecai. Remember when he he saved the king from the assassination plan, and and he wasn't honored for it. Nobody, you know, gave him a fruit basket. Nobody gave him a gift card. Nobody made him, you know, man of the day, gave him keys of the city. Three years he patiently waited, and then God in his timing brought that to light to the king, and that's what set into motion, set the stage for God to begin to work, and the new law, and all of those things. The Jews had to wait. They had to wait one year from the time of the first decree for them to be annihilated, for God to step in and work out all the details. They had to be, say it, patient. And we're all so good at that, aren't we? God's delays are not always God's denials. We just have to wait. Hebrews eleven one says it this way now faith is the substance of things hoped for, we're looking forward to, but the evidence of things not seen. We don't see them right now, but we believe in God's promises. We can trust God even when we cannot trace God. But we have to be patient. We have to be patient. God's delays are not always God's denials. I've said this many times. God is never late. God is never early. He's always right on time. And I don't like it any more than you do, but I found in my life many times, it's the 11th hour. It's 11.59. But that's when God does his best work, doesn't he? When we don't have any idea humanly how this could possibly turn around. And then finally, we learn this lesson from the book of Esther. God doesn't expect expect us to do everything. But he does expect us to do, say it church. You got it. He does expect us to do something. Esther alone could not save 15 million people Mordecai alone could not save 15 million people but they did what God called them to do they couldn't do everything but they could do something and they did something and they saved a nation I remind you of our key verse in this whole story And then we close. Esther chapter 4 verse 14. For if you remain, this is Mordecai talking to Esther, encouraging her to do something to save the Jewish people. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from some other place. But you and your father's house will perish. And here's the famous words. Yet who knows, Esther? Who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? You who knows Esther, if God hasn't put you in this place, in this position, in this kingdom, for this moment, listen, church. For such a time as this, everyone, listen to me. Don't just pack up. We all have a kingdom that we live in. You have a neighborhood. You have a house. You have a community. You have a family. You have a church. You have a school. We all have our kingdom that we live in. And can I say to all of us what Mordecai said to Esther? Who knows if God has not brought us to this place, to this city, to this community, to this family, to these friends, to this church for such a time as this. To make a difference. We can't do everything, but you can do something. You can do something. The book of Esther reaches across time and challenges all of us. Go all in and see what God will do. Would you bow your heads this morning?